Hello, and welcome to the Afro Reads podcast with your hosts, Amara and Ugochi. Afro Reads is a book review podcast that was created out of our shared love for reading African fiction books. We talk through its themes and try to tie its key messages to our African heritage, culture, and contemporary issues. We invite you to turn the page and let's begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of Afro Reads podcast. My name is Ugochi, and I'm joined by my co-host, Amara. And we are a book club that reads and discusses historical events through the lens of African authors. However, for this episode, we have strayed from the African author. And we're discussing Emma's War by Deborah Scroggins. She's an American journalist, or she was an American journalist with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And she currently is a director of research and analysis for the Special Inspector General for the Afghanistan Reconstruction. Yes, so this book is very complex. It's about Sudan and its civil wars. So we are privileged to have two guests here with us, Dr. Tanji King and Asienza Sony Valentino. So do you mind introducing yourselves a bit? Uh, Tanji, we could start with you. Sure, my name is Tarnjeet Kang, and I'm a researcher in South Sudan supporting UN agencies and NGOs in their data collection needs. Um, I first went to South Sudan in 2014 as a PhD student and have just made it home now. <laughs> Very nice. And Sanzo, what about you? Can you give us a little bit of your background? My name is Asien Josoni Valentino. I work with the UN International Organization for Migration currently. I'm a civil society activist, precisely a women activist. That begins with myself. Thank you. All right, so this point we're gonna do um, a few icebreaker questions. Sansa, I'm gonna start with you. I'll just ask you three questions and just the first thing that comes to your mind, answer or go for that. Well, kind of random questions, but the first okay. one that comes to mind. All right. Okay. Have you been to modern-day Sudan? I have been in Sudan all my life, born in Sudan, raised in Sudan, before Sudan actually became independent. I mean, South Sudan gained its independence in 2011, on the 9th of July. I think all my life. Okay. What was the last movie that you watched? The last movie I watched was The Tyrant. Yeah, I love to watch series, mostly related to the way I have been brought up the way my country has been. Mm. So I like watching those. Yeah, it was discontinued like four years ago. Love it as well, by the way. Okay, last question. Where is the area in South Sudan that you go to that gives you the most peace? The area that gives me the most peace is in Ye, in the part of Central Equatorial State. Mm-hmm. Um, that is where I was raised. I think mm-hmm. I have two locations that are so close to my heart. I was born in Western Equatorial Steps in Yambio. I lived there until I was 10 years, then brought to school by some sisters from the Catholic Church. So I've been all my life in Ye. Ye is very peaceful. And the people of Ye are also very, very peaceful. So Ye nice. gave me a reason that I need to be a strong woman and fight for other women too. Ye is a very special place for me. And my mother also liked Ye very much. That's where I was groomed, and that's why I became a woman. This leads me to another question, but I'll ask it later about women in Sudan, because I've heard of a lot of, I guess, women's activist groups in South Sudan. Tanji, on you now. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. 
What is your favorite South Sudanese food? Oh, that's a good question. I would have to say Kisra. You can eat it with just about everything and it tastes delicious. So that would be my favorite one. Is it pancake? <laughs> is it mashed food? Yeah, it's a bit like a pancake, but it's thinner. It's much thinner and it doesn't taste sweet. It's it's a bit, it's more of a fermented kind of pancake. And it's, uh, yeah, it has a bit more of a sour limey taste, which I really like too. How different is it from the injera? Um, I think it's quite close. Asienzo might be able to say more about how they're made. I'm not sure. (laughs) But I would say the taste and the look and the texture is a little bit different, but it's quite similar. Yeah, funny enough, I was watching documentaries on Emma, Emma McCune, and I think she mentioned Chris Kisra, and in the video, they were like um, flattening the, and she was like, yeah, it's like pancake. And I was like, okay. So when you said it, I was like, okay, yeah, this is quite familiar. (laughs) It's a really interesting process to watch how it's made. um, Because for me, for example, like in my culture, we tend to make rotis and chapatis, and I can never get it perfectly round. So when you watch people making them, it's a really fascinating process to watch. But Asienda, what do you think? Uh, Kisra is more light than, than pancake. It's also more lighter than chapati because there is a way they pull out all the greens. They make it even more lighter. When they are mixing it, it becomes more lighter. That's why it's very light than chapati and pancake. So Kisra is actually the most liked food for South Sudanese. Let me say Sudan for mm-hmm. Sudanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, they eat with a, with a sauce called kudra or they make okra. That's how they eat with it. Anyway, it's a nice one. Yeah, I've yeah. seen videos on it. It looks nice. And all the soups as well that you can use it with. Okay, Tanjit, um, let's see. What is the best thing about the Nile River for you? Oh, that is such a good question. Honestly, I think it's just the way it feels to be near it. It's, you know, I think there's something from a spiritual perspective about flowing water that's really important. And I feel like wherever you encounter the river in South Sudan, whether it's in Juba or in a different place, it just tends to have a very calming effect on you. And what is the last book that you read, not counting Emma's War? <laughs> that's a good question because I think I mostly read for work these days. But um, in Juba Book Club, we're actually reading Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. So that's the one that I'm reading right now. Okay, very nice. I actually wanted to steal one of Asienzo's questions about the most peaceful place in, in South Sudan because you mentioned Yambio. And Yambio was actually the first place that I learned to call home when I was in South Sudan. And I was staying with the Catholic Church as well, which you mentioned when I was a student. And that, I, I don't know how to explain Yambio to other people um, when they haven't experienced it, but it really is just one of the most freeing and peaceful places that you can encounter in the country, I think. Does the does the environment, like the climate, have anything to do with it? Or like, yeah, it's the environment and the climate. Like it is more of a tropical atmosphere. Um, very green. The land is very fertile. It's an agricultural area. But in addition to that, Yambio and even Ye, which Asienza was mentioning, is some of the Equatorian areas were very untouched by the 2013 conflict. They really only got involved starting 2015 and then into 2016 when the conflict broke out again. Um, so it's a, it's a very different atmosphere there. All right. Thank you, ladies. Okay. So now this part, we usually talk about current events. Amara, do you want to go first with yours? So for me, it's the African 
performance at the Olympics. I've heard really good stories. Ghana got their first medal. Also, is it Egypt or Algeria as well that got a medal in um, one of the track sports? So they kind of unseated Kenya in one of the long distance races. So I've been following them like that. But Nigeria has been in the news quite a lot. I'm not sure about other African countries because uh, athletes went very much unprepared. Obviously, they had prepared in terms of training and they got there and they realized half the protocols were not being followed. So about 10 of our athletes were disqualified on the spot. (laughs) So I can imagine their frustration because this is like, at least four years of practicing, five years if you count the COVID year, and then just to be told at the last minute that you cannot compete, which I think is really sad. And they went around protesting and things like that. Yeah, it, if you go back to the stories, a lot of politics involved. And some guy that was doing the shot put for us came out to say they only give us one jersey. So every night he has to wash his jersey and iron it and use it again. But we happen to get two medals, so we've kind of, even if the Olympic Games have gone on, we've ended, like, that's it, because half of our athletes were disqualified for either not following protocols or doping laws, which I don't think anyone really did the doping. It's just more of, again, maybe communication issues. But yes, our really good runners and everything were disqualified. So I just think it's a real shame and embarrassment, and it's crazy because I know in four years' time, there's going to be like similar issues. And then I was reminiscing on the fact that in 1996, like we had two gold medals that year and it's just been a descent till now where we finished early because, yep, half the squad was disqualified. So just really sad. But yeah, sorry, that was me ranting. Um, to bring it back to South Sudan, though, they've actually had a number of people who are really competitive in the diaspora that have been competing, including the winner, the 800 meters gold medal winner. She's an American of South Sudanese descent. I think there have been others who are represented through Canada and other places now, plus South Sudanese refugees who've been stuck in Japan training for the last year because of COVID. So South Sudan is working its way up into the Olympic um, events somehow, despite all the challenges that the athletes are facing. So it's been really exciting to be able to watch those accomplishments and celebrate them. Yeah, I like how as time is going on, the Olympics is more accessible to countries like Nigeria and in South Sudan, uh, if you know what I mean. Like, if that's a dream for you, it's it's definitely more achievable now than before. So I like yeah. that. And just to echo that, I think what Ugochi is trying to say, like last the last Winter Olympics was the first time we had a bobsledge team. And then this year, I've only started hearing about more events we've taken part in um i forgot in gymnastics we had a gymnast i'm not sure yeah, we did. yeah as you said it's just more open and the thing about nigeria because we're so resilient and the government really is never on our side even things like crowdfunding yeah That's- yeah 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 we have access to that and social media as well has really been good in promoting like if you just want to do it there's so much more support you know so that's really good yeah we're finding ways Okay. I want to talk about, <laughs> you know, Nigerians are known for, for frauding people and corruption. And late, uh, latest in the news, our deputy commissioner of police of Nigeria is wanted by the FBI. There's a man named 
Hush Puppy. His, his real name is Ramon Abbas. He was recently indicted for money laundering. So he was indicted by the United States. And uh, he implicated Abba Kiari, which is our deputy commissioner of police, as being involved in the internal schemes to defraud a Qatari school founder and launder over $1 million in illicit proceeds, which I find horrible because, you know, they're frauding a, a, a potential school. This story really frustrated me for me to talk about it because the head of police of Nigeria, who you think is supposed to protect, investigate crime himself, is involved in crime. He's actually imprisoning people who Hush Puppy, the fraudster, wanted imprisoned and Hush Puppy would pay him to do it. So, yeah, I guess yeah. that's my grief. <laughs> yeah, and I remember when you told me this story, what you were like, where does it really end? Are we always just out to just keep defrauding ourselves and just keep being, why can't you just be a deputy commissioner of police and just get on with your job? Why do you have to collect bribes and just feed into the nasty system that is corruption and is, does it ever end? Do people actually have limits, you know? So, yeah, I get your frustration as well. Is there a crime that you wouldn't commit? Like, <laughs> is there anything off limits? I think that's it. That was yeah. the question we're asking. Yeah. Like, at what, at what point will you adhere to, like, morality, I guess? Or where does, where does that end for you? I don't know. So I want to say the summary of the book, but we have lots of questions. So Sanzo, I'm sure you'll get to complete your thought because off of what you were saying, I have a lot of questions <laughs> for you. Don't All worry. Right. I was waiting for this day. <laughs> when I was off network, I was so worried that I was not going to participate again because when I read about Emma, I didn't know this much about her. Even if I read the book, like small part of it that uh, Amara sent me, it made me become so interested. I read it like over and over again, that piece. And then I was like, I wish I could read more. Asiento, yeah. I can bring the book back to Juba for you. I'm on leave at the moment, but I'll be back later this month. Okay, that would be nice. Mm. Love the connection. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, let me give a brief summary. I'm going to try to make this as brief as I can because, you know, it's very um, complex. Very All right. So I'm going to stick to talking about Emma in the synopsis because, you know, there's a lot going on in the book, history-wise. Perhaps we can get into the history of Sudan also which is very interesting as we get on with our discussion. So Scroggins, the author, is sent to Sudan on assignment by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in 1988, because at that time, the southern part of Sudan was going through a famine, um, and it seemed as though the government did not want to help. So there were Ethiopian refugees in what is now South Sudan due to the famine in Ethiopia. And the Sudanese government was demanding more money from the UN Refugee Agency, or else they gave an ultimatum or else they would kick the, these refugees out of the country. So Deborah's focus was on Ethiopians at first. Um, upon arrival in Khartoum, which is Sudan's capital, she quickly learned that there was also a famine and possibly slavery amongst the Dinka tribe uh, displaced in the Darfur region, which is in Western Sudan. So this piqued her curiosity and she fought for clearance to travel to an area in Darfur called Safaha. On her way there, she learned that many Dinka had been taken to Safaha or found themselves at this camp because their villages had been raided with the intention we know now to seize land for oil purposes. Um, so there was a, a massacre called the Ed Daim Massacre, which was also in, Dar in the Darfur region, which was mentioned in the book. So that's one of the massacres. 
the refugees in Safaha rented their kids, quote unquote, to, Bagar, to the Bagara tribe, which was in the area, who were rich, had money, and they rented them in order to get food. The Safaha camps were run by the Rizagat militia. These Rizagat people also lived in the area and they rationed food unfairly. So the camp, described, the camp was described as people starving, sick, and dying. So Deborah eventually fell sick with typhoid and she went to Nairobi for treatment where she began to write and alert the rest of the famine of 1988 occurring in Western Sudan to the, to the rest of the world. This put the world on notice about what was happening. Scroggins eventually came across Emma McCune, who was an English woman that was a socialite at the time. They both hung out in the white circle in Sudan, which is small, and Deborah was annoyed that Emma had more insight into the SPLA, which is Sudan People's Liberation Army. Um, so Emma was born in India, and they lived lavishly there. They moved back to England when Emma was two, after Britain's control over India had started to diminish, and companies began to hire Indians instead of British people. So Emma's father, I, think, I, I guess, found himself out of a job. Um, in the UK, he had no skill and thought real work was above him, so he fell into debt, and he eventually committed suicide. Emma was described as adventurous and lavish like her dad and found a circle of friends with African interests. But when she watched a, a BBC documentary on the Ethiopian famine, it sparked her interest to go to Ethiopia. Through some connections with, with friends, she first made it to Sudan in 1987 and became an art teacher, but she wasn't making much and things began to discuss her like female mutilation, sexual harassment and poverty. So she wanted to start to work in this area of aid, but she couldn't just get a job in this section with, with her arts degree. Um, she realized that she needed a, a degree that would qualify her uh, for a job desire to work for an aid, aid agency. So she went back to the UK and attended the School of Oriental and African Studies in London for her master's. After that, she ended up back in Sudan, this time working on a school project funded by the United Nations, Operation Lifeline. During this time, the Islamic-controlled northern part of Sudan were at odds with the Christian and traditional southern part of the country. Dr. John Garang, who is a Dinka, is a Dinka, was a leader of the SPLA, the Sudan People's Liberation Army, and was fighting for a secular constitution not led by Sharia law because at this time, non-Muslims were being persecuted. Emma settled in the region of Equatoria, which is a southern region that borders Zaire, where she began to set up schools for children. She worked heavily with the Dinka, who are a melodic ethnic group of the southern part of former Sudan, um, now South Sudan. They'd favored her as they thought she was different, being a white lady, tall, and with a lot of love for the people. Within one year, Operation Lifeline had 22,000 pupils attending schools in Equatoria. She made a lot of friends. Uh, she was described to be like sexually free, reckless in nature. She had heard about Dr. Riek Machar because he was a part of the SPLA and um, had a high ranking at the time. And she was, I guess, excited about him. And I think if you are reading this in the book, you, you begin to think that she, she likes power of some sort. So she, through her connections, she attended one of his meetings, uh, Dr. Riek Mishar. And before she got to the meeting, she knew in her head that she wanted to sleep with him. So I believe that night she, they did, they met, he was also intrigued by her and they ended up sleeping together. After that, she tried to get in touch with him, but 
to no avail. Uh, a year later, she finally met up with him again and he proposed um, and soon after they got married. So Riek Mishar, Dr. Riek Mishar, he eventually created another sect of the SPLA separate from Dr. John Garang because him and Dr. John Garang were at odds. So Emma's mission was always to provide education to kids. She was very into that. But once she married Reg Mishar and started living in his world, we could see her, the cloudiness of her judgment. She still wanted to help the kids with edu and provide education, but she was also starting to make excuses for Reg's behavior. In the book, it's described that Riek um, and his soldiers were hoarding food, not giving them fairly to, to his people. So then you see a lot of starvation. And then you see, you, it's described that Emma is making excuses for that. So you see a deter deterioration of Emma's thinking from, what, from when she came to, to that point. She started to lose friends. Uh, her close friend, the Indian doctor, her name is Burnett Kumar, was still in touch, but she described to the author Scroggins that she became reckless and you could tell that she wasn't in favor of what Emma was doing. Uh, Emma eventually got fired from her position. They did not let her use UN resources, although sometimes she would sneak herself into UN planes to, to travel somewhere but she found herself heavily involved with Dr. Riek Mishar's movement. She eventually got pregnant by him, moved to Nairobi and was staying there for a while. And that's where she ended up passing away from a car accident. Um, and that's where the book kind of leaves off, right? Yeah. Her death. Um, yeah. Thanks, Ugochi. Like, because I was contemplating on whether to read the whole book again today and just skip through. That was a really good summary. Okay. Uh, Sans, I want to bring it to you. Um, in your opinion, why do you think Emma was so enthralled with Sudan and its complexities? To me, I was just imagining it's very difficult for someone to get enthralled like in people and to live a free life, more especially with the situation in South in Sudan before. Mm -hmm. But I think Emma has this fascinated attention that she had so much passion for the issue of the children who were starving and also more especially the education of the children. Emma didn't mind about the hardship. Emma didn't mind about the climate or anything to do with Sudan and even the war-torn kind of region that she's in. She, I guess it's just that issue of the education and also ensuring creating a safe space for the children to live in. To me, that is what made her enthralled to the story of South Sudan and Sudan like that. You know who Emma reminds me of, as you say that, she reminds me of Princess Diana. Yeah, I think you said that before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tarnjeet, did you say something? Yeah, I was just saying that um, I actually disagree Sorry, with that characterization. I think there's a real romanticization of Emma in the book. And Asienzo, as a protection specialist, can speak to this more, but a lot of the things that she did and the way that she handled things would ethically and morally just not be allowed, uh, you know, if, if she were working in South Sudan today. I think that there's a glamorization of, of the way that she's portrayed. And when we think to why a lot of aid workers end up in South Sudan, I don't think there's one answer to it. 
But throughout the book and throughout, you know, the author's references to her mother's book as well, you, you see that she was, this was a personal thing too. It wasn't just a professional thing. Um, she was looking for something that she had missed in her childhood. She didn't grow up with this very loving romantic story with her family. She didn't really quite know where she belonged. She didn't do that well in school, right? So she was looking for a professional and a personal path as well. And I think that she found meaning somehow um, in, in the work that she started doing in South Sudan. But then as you see, you know, with her as her relationship with Machar grows, those values kind of go away. Suddenly it's not about the orphans, the boys, the food and their access to education. She's compromising a lot of her values. So I think it's also really interesting how the author weaves in these references back to her childhood throughout the book to kind of try to explain about why she was there in the first place and how she was going about making decisions. Because, you know, things like marrying a rebel commander or, you know, breaking the rules, going outside of the humanitarian structures, these are things that really wouldn't be allowed today. Um, by the international community that's working there, by the government. Um, and it would be seen as a very unethical, moral thing to pick a side or to align yourself somehow with one side during, the, during a conflict or even during the delivery of humanitarian services um, because the UN and other organizations really focused on portraying themselves as neutral and impartial. And she definitely <laughs> broke a lot of boundaries in that regard. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear Asiendo's side and perspective on that as well, given her area of expertise. Okay, from my side, I may say, uh, according to the book, for sure, she also had that part that she, she was really, she fell in love with my child. But to me, I was also looking at it, she was looking for a way how it can lead her to achieve what she wanted to do. And uh, she was thinking having an ally, like she was using my child maybe like, uh, like an ally that she can depend on because he's in power and he's very influential. So she thought marrying my child will give her an opportunity that she can also get to involve, I mean, get children in school and also contribute a lot to the lives of the children in South Sudan, more especially becoming a mother of one of the Sudanese children. I think that means a lot. That requires a lot of selflessness. Personally, I, I can't even do that. I was just imagining me as a humanitarian worker, breaking all these rules of being non-partisan, of being um, neutral, breaking all those lines, and then you just throw your life so, I mean, to a military person for that matter. It's so... Sandra, I'm going to ask... How Emma, how, where did she even get that courage from in the first place? Yeah, you hadn't heard of Emma before... before I, like, I heard about Emma being okay. the wife of Macha, but I have not read so much about her. I was just hearing her being mentioned among the heroines in the country. Every time they're giving a speech about the heroes, she's being mentioned about amongst the heroines. So, but I didn't read so much about her like that, yeah. Do you think because, um, is it an act of courage that she ended up with Riek Mashar and enthralled herself in, this, in his world? Or do you think that it's because she's reckless and she, and she wasn't, I guess, thinking correctly that she ended up in that situation? For me, I may not say that Emma was not thinking correctly. Emma is just too brave. Emma is a character I don't know how to even say about her. She's very brave. And she was very determined, by the way. 
that goes back to her childhood. She never had the chance to also mix with intellectuals like Dr. Machad, see? So mm-hmm. to me, it goes back to her childhood and the way she was nurtured. And your father committed suicide. Just imagine that kind of dramatic event for a child and then growing up in that kind of situation. Uh, you're a big fan, Sanzo. Is there <laughs> anything you say that you think Emma should have done or she kind of slipped on this? So let's ask the question like that. Is there any... Thing you're not so sure of like hearing about Emma that you wish she did more or did less of for me uh yeah. the southerners that time would look at Emma's differently she remained neutral if she didn't break all these humanitarian laws of becoming yeah. you know engaging with a military personnel that time a rebel for that matter that would have at least at least make sense that is what I may say so you like say- a worker I cannot, I cannot get engaged with a rebel, no matter what, I can't. Because that is okay. very risky, yeah. Okay, so you admire her for being brave, but you agree she did break a lot of laws. She laid down her life. This, you know, that act of selflessness, selflessness is too much. To, to an extent, you lay down your life to that extent. It's not so easy. She's just... A character I, I cannot define anyway. That got those type of women, they got a lion heart or something. I don't know. <laughs> but you know, funny enough, I was watching the documentary, and she was so like you know in the book there, there's a part she described the fact she kept falling ill and having all these like infections, and she would have to go to Nairobi. I watched the documentary and she was a skeleton. Even if, yeah, I, I feel like she does have a dangerous streak where she knows she came out and she was just reckless. I feel like it takes, as, as you say, Sanzo, like a different type of human being to keep living in that condition, knowing you have the choice to live at any point. So she's very complex. She's, she, I think she's like a marmite. You, you think of her as a hero and brave, but also very, very like reckless in the sense that was that really the best cause of action? But or what was really her intention? Was she altruistic or was it just a thrill for her? I would even say I was thinking beyond. It's not about even thinking out of the box. I reached to an extent of kicking the box out of my my legs and, and think straight <laughs> just kicking off the box and think straight i was just imagining why was emma doing this first of all she's a humanitarian worker is she a spy or something because you can't you can't just lay your life so low like that that is that is like i can't even do that in the first place when you have a choice some of us are living in let me say in sudan or south sudan that time because you have no option your father yeah. is one of the rebels. He's fighting the war. And you are here with your mother. The next day, they are moving from this location. Imagine people are walking. They are not, we are not, there was no vehicle that time. People are walking. Emma walking in these bushes, getting malaria. I was even imagining what if Emma gets junior worms, more especially in those areas that Machar was staying in. There were a lot of diseases. Even sister flies with bite hands, she can even get blind. How could she be that reckless? That, that is too much. Yeah. That made me even feel that maybe she's a spy or something. She's a spy. <laughs> I think people <laughs> thought she was a spy. All right, let's move on to the next question. There's quite a lot to go through. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have one more question for Tanji about, yeah. um, I guess, hum, uh, humanitarian aid. Do you think at that time, 
because I think it was the UN's first time of supplying aid to both areas that were fighting against each other. So do you think at that time things were new, it was easier for her to break these rules? I think it was actually the first time that there was a coordinated mechanism or approach that was established to providing yeah. aid. And mm-hmm. then the Southern region also opened up more as Khartoum allowed aid and also the SPLA in the Southern regions allowed more aid to come into the area. But I think that, yeah, definitely. I mean, sh- there weren't the established protocols that you would find today. Um, you know, if somebody were to do this today, they would definitely be deported, their visa revoked, it would be a completely different response. Um, the organization, I think, you know, she was working for an NGO at the time, and, and you wonder as you get further and further into the story, where was their oversight in all of this? Because now, and, and that's Asiendo can, can attest to, anytime you make a movement under your organization, there's a lot of paperwork that goes into it. I'm sure every protocol now created for aid worker was because of Emma. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, you know, but there's no way that you can move about the country, especially as a foreigner, without people knowing who you are, where you're going and what you're doing. And, you know, it's not just about um, the impression of the image that it leaves, but it's also about whether you're doing more harm than good when you're not following protocols, because it's also about protection of the people that you're working with. And as we see in the book, there are some instances where it's suspected that the information that Emma was sharing or receiving Mm -hmm. actually ended up in people being harmed. Um, because of that, and certain locations targeted for attacks because she was publicly broadcasting information. So, and also, you know, impacting relationships with the Khartoum government at the time between the UN agencies and um, the government and and perhaps yeah. leading to the restriction of aid in certain areas as a result of that. So, it, you know, and I think a lot of times when we join these organizations, what we're taught is it's not about us as an individual, we're really think, taught to think in an organizational perspective and manner because what we do and what we say and how we behave, it impacts a lot more than just us as individuals. We can't act alone. You know, even a lot of times when you're walking around in a community, you'll have the symbol of your organization on your shirt or on your badge or something. So people don't just identify you as a singular person, but as a representative of that organization. And I think, you know, those kinds of protocols and impressions are a lot more embedded today and a lot more regulated than they were at the time. Blame Emma. Blame Emma. (laughs) <laughs> well I think it's it's a double-edged sword I mean on the one hand yes there's a lot of tedious bureaucracy and paperwork but on the other hand we absolutely should be thinking about you know the protection rights that the community members have in this regard so it goes both ways I think mm-hmm. um okay so Emma mentioned several times in the novel that Sudan had a magic spell that drew people in and Sanza, I know that you have, you know, forever love for your country. <laughs> you know, you know that magic spell. But Tarnjeet, what is that magic spell for you that draws you to the people of Sudan, South Sudan? I mean, I can't speak from everybody's perspective, but I do work there as a researcher. And the thing is, there's always something new to learn. And I'm somebody, you know, in my life, I really like to be sure of things. But doing research and and obtaining that data from conversations, because I do a lot of qualitative research firsthand, um, obtaining that information and shattering any misconceptions or preconceptions and existing frameworks I have is, it's such an invigorating experience. It's something that helps me to feel like I keep growing. And I would say the primary thing 
that really started in the beginning in my first experience with South Sudan was I came as a student, right? I didn't work for an NGO or the UN or anybody. I was there by myself and just really relying on the kindness of people. And South Sudanese cultures, no matter which part of the country or which community you're in, is very receptive to guests. And especially, you know, I think despite a lot of the, the stereotypes that are out there, it's also very supportive of education and students. Um, and so I, I had a very welcoming and warm experience in that way, especially, you know, from the Catholic Church and, and from the family and friends of the diaspora members that I met in the U.S. who really helped to facilitate the work that I was doing and helped me make contacts and navigate different processes. So that is something that I'll definitely always be grateful for. So I think it's that welcoming atmosphere to guests in the communities that also really um, helped a lot of us fall in love with the country. Yeah. Can you tell us what your your research was about? I find it very interesting. And since the first day we spoke, I've been thinking more about it. Like in three sentences, what, what was your topic? About? Sure. So my dissertation was on community self-determination in South Sudan, which was basically looking specifically at the education system, how communities were meeting their own needs. And that meant looking at examples such as community-founded schools, you know, how they were um, supporting the feeding programs of um, children in the boarding schools, for example, during the liberation movement, um, building fences, providing stipends for the teachers and things like that, which is something that's very undocumented, unfortunately, in South Sudan, yeah. because most of the knowledge production tends to focus on what are the gaps, the challenges and the problems. So I tried to focus on the goodness instead. Thank you. That was nice and sweet. It leads to the next question. Yeah. Um, and I want to say magic for me. That's just one point. <laughs> While I was doing this research about South Sudan and reading this book, I was, I spent a week like looking at documentaries. I was just so, I guess, enthralled about, every, about everything of, about South Sudan because I had, I guess, a, a preconceived notion of, of what I thought it was, I can say. And yeah, the media does portray it to be something that, something that it isn't. So, um, but even just to jump on that, I have been, I was doing research this week, but unfortunately, as Ugochi, you've said, like the media on South Sudan is just filled with, you know, the, the challenges, the malnutrition, the corruption. Mm -hmm. So it, it's very, it's a breath of fresh air. This is why I say I've been thinking about your topic, Tanjit, like that there are people out there that actually have, studies and there's a whole research on okay this is how actually the daily life of like a South Sudanese person lives and it's actually normal and they actually like education and it's actually ambitious. All right um so going off of piggybacking off of schools and access to education um Sanzo schools and access to education was unavailable for six years is the effect of those lost years still felt today? Yes, I think um, somehow I may say the education system is coming up a little bit. Some parts of Sudan that time, places like Yambio uh, and Yeri, they had schools because of the missionaries who came there, uh, okay. mostly the Catholic schools. That's where I also went to school too, from nursery up to until I finished my O level. So there, there was that, that opportunity for specific children to access the education that time. But now 
the narrative is changing a little bit because it's not only the Catholic school. Uh, that time you could see from nursery up to like secondary school, it's only the Catholic and the Episcopal churches that have schooled. You can find there is a government school, but there are no teachers. Or sometimes the teachers who are there are not even that qualified, like the ones in the Catholic schools. But now we have many other private schools, although they are too expensive, not everyone in the country can, can access that education because they cannot afford it. So I may say not every child in South Sudan right now can access education, more especially in the areas we're working in. Some locations we go to, we find children are staying at home. Like if you go to Raja right now, some schools are abandoned because there are no teachers. There are no children going to school, will more especially the girl child. Is there a lack of teachers because no money for them? Yeah. Or um i'm actually a teacher a teacher by profession <laughs> oh sorry I, I didn't tell you that before um i went to teachers training college before before joining the humanitarian world and started doing my activism so there is no i mean people did not make education attractive the education sector is not being made attractive actually for them so it's more especially okay. the teachers mm -hmm. so there is no salary you find you have very meager salary that I cannot even afford for you a meal for one month. So at the end of the day, people quit education sector. They go and look for humanitarian work so that they're able to add living. You know us in Sudan or South Sudan with the extended families we have, you have to provide like almost for everyone. You are taking responsibility of many people. So at the end of the day, that money you're getting from the teaching will not be enough to even sponsor your own child to school, to go to, a, to access better education. So we quit teaching and go to access better jobs for us to also give a better education to our children. Because the system in the country is not as, as best as for other countries like, like Uganda. So you find many children from South Sudan whose parents can afford their studying in, in, in Uganda. And some of them who were in the refugee settlement, some of them got scholarships and went abroad and studied. At least now they come back and also take other children to study, those who have good heart. So it's not so easy, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a really bad foundation. Um, and it's just very sad to hear. Sometimes I just think South Sudan is such a new country, like 2011, like couldn't they see like, you know, the the issues with other African countries like Nigeria and all the many African countries that had gone through what they went through in the 60s, like in new, I'm just thinking they had knowledge, prior knowledge, like we should not be discussing schools without teachers, like just 10 years after independence, they should, they should have just known this, but it's so, to me, I just, I find it frustrating, but at the same time, it's, it's not that easy. It's easier said than done. But I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> because I'm Sorry. just imagining in five years from now, I'm just looking at the period of 10 years. Yeah. I was imagining in 10 years, in these 10 years, by the time they had introduced the guest program, the Girl Child Education Initiative, I was imagining that the number of girls who would go to school by now would go at least even to 15%. But I am seeing now we are moving one step backward instead of moving one step ahead. And now we are moving two steps back. We are going to have clueless mothers 
who will not have any clue even how to do a simple homework for their children. That is already what I am seeing. Because in 10 years, for 10 years, we have not done anything. So what, what next? I'm imagining in five years from now, how will South Sudan be? More especially in the education sector. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think it's really important to think about the historical context here. Um, so during colonization, the northern area of Sudan and the southern area were treated very differently. So there wasn't the same level of investment and development, particularly in terms of schools. And if you look at a lot of the colonial records, what you see is that there's really only an effort to educate the chiefs that they created and their descendants so that they would, because the the chiefs in South Sudan, as we know them today, were more so of a colonial creation. And so they were educated with certain skills very strategically in order to support the native administration approach that the British colonial empire used in its colonies. Um, and then you also had the missionary education, which was strategically very limited to uh, mostly religious education. And when girls were educated, it was more so for domestic skills not really looking to other formal education aspects of it so that they could be integrated into the workforce. And then when independence happened in the 1950s, I think it was for South Sudan, it was 1956, um, it was a similar practice, to be honest, where you saw more of an investment in the northern areas compared to southern Sudan. And then the, with the introduction of Sharia law as well, the education that was implemented at times, depending on who was in power in Khartoum, was really more so focused on Islamic education. And that's why you see this discrepancy between the north and the south even today. So it's important to not just think about what happened when colonization ended and the independence movement across Africa and Asia and Latin America was happening, but also to consider that these discrepancies have a very, very long history to them. So when South Sudan became independent in 2011, as Asienda was mentioning, that also became the beginning of creating its own national curriculum, which had not existed before. Prior to that, because of a lot of a displacement that happened and the conflict, they were really dependent on the curriculum of Kenya and Uganda and other countries, for example, um, even for those schools that were existing in South Sudan at the time. So in addition to that, I think it's also important to consider that quality of education is something that continues to be an issue. And when you're kind of in survival mode and in humanitarian crisis, then the indicators of progress and success are really, did we build these schools? How many children enrolled and how many graduated? And not so much on what is the quality of the education? Are the right. teachers showing up every day? And things yeah. like that, you know, are these skills that they're learning applicable to the job market that they're entering. The other thing, um, going back to what Asienza was discussing about teachers before, yes, low salary is a significant issue, why, which is why many of those who are educated and trained as teachers end up in the, working in the aid sector. But the other issue is that independence in 2011, the official language changed to English. And a lot of teachers at the time had been educated in maybe Sudan or even Egypt. And so they, or had been in Arabic medium schools within South Sudan. And suddenly, you know, the skills and the training they had were not so easily transferable to the new country that they were finding themselves in. So that has also been an issue because I think if you look at the, if you were to include Arabic medium teachers, um, within the total number of trained teachers that actually increases, especially along the Northern states, um, that are by the border with Sudan. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention was that um, Asiento had mentioned the Girls Education South Sudan program, which is a really important 
program to consider because when you look globally, actually a lot of aid um, has primarily been focused on basic education, which is primary school. Yeah. And this is something that has been established since the 1990s through a World Education Conference. So it's a global agenda that was really just focusing on primary education. So if you don't have access to secondary education, which is still an ongoing issue in South Sudan, because there are not sufficient schools, and especially for girls, if they want to get educated, they might further, they might have to leave their community, which their families might be more reluctant to let them do for various reasons. Um, so the Girls Education South Sudan program, which I believe started in 2014, was meant to try and address this in many ways. It's primarily focused in the beginning on secondary education and addressing some of the causal factors that were preventing girls from going to school after primary education. Um, but as we know, COVID happened last year, and there has been a lot of fear in South Sudan that the closure of schools during that time has regressed a lot of a progress that had been made in the education sector. And what we also saw, because I recently did a study for Oxfam on the impact of school closures on female learners, was that girls were being engaged into early enforced marriage by their families because poverty levels were also increasing. Um, we saw teenage pregnancy rates increasing, domestic violence rates increasing. And so we're still waiting to understand the total impact that it's had on South Sudan's education system, but there are a multitude of factors that go into what we're seeing today. Um, I do think one of the things that we've observed, or at least I've been able to see on an anecdotal level in the years that I spent in South Sudan is that a lot of those who are educated in Uganda and Kenya have come home and they're trying to work to rebuild their country. And they're also very invested in the education of their children. And as Anso mentioned, you know, you're not just responsible for your own children and immediate family, your nuclear family, but in South Sudan, you're, you also become responsible for your extended family, especially if you are, you know, a humanitarian worker with a regular salary. There is an expectation that you will support others too. And so I think that um, for this generation that was educated outside of their country to come home and to make these investments within their family networks is also going to be really important. So it's a really complicated situation, but and I think it's going to take yeah. us a few years to see what is the impact of these investments, but also to see what is the impact of COVID and school closures. But yeah, I think it's really important to understand the historical context that has led to where the education system is today. Interesting. Thank you for that. Thank you for that, that's so yeah. clear. All right, let me move on to the next question about the leaders. So people talk about the paradox of the top leaders having top quality education and still not being able to figure out how to govern Sudan, South Sudan, I should say. What was the missing link? What do you think the missing link is? I'll turn it over to Sanzo. For me, I would... Uh... I would see that these guys are more passionate about themselves. They are thinking about themselves. They are self-centered. They, they are not holding South Sudan in their heart because education is the most important sector. Imagine someone who is holding a paper like a doctor. He's a doctor. And for one second, he has not thought of even the ordinary child of his own bodyguard. Which school does he go to? And where is his own child? At the end of the day, that is the reality about what happens in South Sudan. They don't access education. They have very high level of education, all of them, except let me say President Salfakil, which I cannot compare him to Dr. Machar, Dr. Wan Iga, and some of those doctors 
women like Annie To, who has been in the liberation struggle throughout. Their children are not in the country. Their, their children are well off. I was just imagining, imagine their children are holding even higher positions in the organizations and they are, the children of the poor mm. are becoming more poorer. They are not able to access education. Some of us, we access this education because of the missionary. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this, this extent or else we just get married off. And they are the same people in the system who do not want to create a system that supports the education system. You know, sometimes it's not about them. Much as we talk about them, but also the system, even if they go right now. I may say if the military government go right now and we have another government, if the system is not changed, nothing will change. The narrative will never change at all. For me, I would say that missing link is that they are self-centered. They are not thinking about the next generation. Hmm. I, so I, I, I sound like Dr. Ria Mashad that has been fighting all his life. Like literally he has survived murder attempts and he's lived in the bushes when he could have just gone and pursued to outside South Sudan because he can afford it and he has the resources for it. And as you said, like his family, most, most of the time was in Britain. I think they are still there now. I think he has like six children. But he's always here fighting and fighting and fighting. What would you say about a character or a leader like that, Sandra? For me, what Machar is doing is not the only way to change system. He's always talking about uh, trans transformation. He's always talking about changing the system. But when yeah. he came to Juba, I mean, when he came to Juba, we expected transformation. We expected that the system would change. But suddenly, when he's appointing even the leadership, what brought this agreement between them is because he's appointing his family members. We believed in him in the first place. Before, personally, I believed in my child. And I had a feeling that maybe he could change the situation that we are in to make a better South Sudan. To me, I was looking at it that way. Some people, they think bringing change is by taking arms into their hands. But no, he could challenge the system by changing those articles in the constitution, making policies that will work other than taking guns into his hands and wasting lives in South Sudan, making life very miserable to us. Because after all, when they came back, they only wanted the position. When he became the first vice president, that's it. He was okay. He appointed all his family members. They became part of the government. His quest was for power. His quest was not to change the situation. We expected them to change the system. We expected them to challenge the president and say, listen, the parliament needs to be formed. We need to reduce even the, the allowances that are supposed to be given to the parliament. Let's reduce the money that goes to the, to, to the military sector. Let's pay the salaries of these soldiers. Let's improve the health system. But what happened? He even appointed unqualified people after all. So that made me not to believe in him anymore. I have something to add to that. As, as I was reading the book, um, I kind of figured that maybe he was just in it to protect his, his own tribe or his own family. But when he first broke off from Dr. Garang, it just seemed as if he didn't want to have that peace, that unity party, right? He was no longer fighting Northern Sudan. He was fighting, you know, with a group that he's trying to bring together. 
And on top of that, he has an education. I feel is um, he knows better in, in my head. I feel like he knows better. So I can agree with you on that based off of, I guess, what I've read. Yeah. I think there are a couple of things also to consider. And Asiendo can probably speak more to this aspect of the peace agreement, but the most recent one, the revitalized one, there were a lot of complaints that it was seen as a very elitist way of doing things in terms of a fact that a lot of the grassroots movements that you've seen historically when peace agreements were were made involving southern Sudan and South Sudan mm -hmm. um, were not there this time around. There were a lot of civil society coalitions that were left out, a lot of other groups. And historically, when you look at the other peace agreements, there was a big effort to disseminate that information to the grassroots level and to get um, community buy-in across the country. But that hasn't happened in the latest peace agreement. So that has been more perceived to be more of an elitist approach in order to coming up with the peace agreement. Um, I think the other thing that's really important to consider is you've had decades upon decades of displacement of conflict, of death. And so you have decades upon decades then of grievances that just have not been resolved, whether it's at the yeah. highest level or at the community level. And I think that's one of the things that's hindering South Sudan at the moment. There have been calls for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and there have been different initiatives to have a national dialogue. Even the constitution-making process um, was supposed to be an inclusive process, but a lot of these things have been impacted by the outbreaks of conflict that happened in 2013 and again in 2016. So the processes that would try to address some of these grievances and get community buy-in across the country have been hindered in many ways. And I think that's also part of what is um, making it difficult to really ob obtain a durable and sustainable type of peace in South Sudan. Actually, the constitution process is supposed to be a bottom-top approach because every citizen is supposed to know what the constitution means. They're supposed to give their own ideas. Their participation is paramount. So at the end of the day, the people who are who are fighting are not involved in the peace process. Their, the top leadership is involved. But at the end of the day, are they communicating to their soldiers? No, they are not. And the army became a tribal army. The army is loyal to their group, affiliated yeah. to the tribe. They are not now a national army. So at the end of the day, they sign, today they will sign a transition, I mean, a cessation of hostilities. The next day, the same group is clashing somewhere. And then you ask yourself, are they under the same command or what is happening between them? Because the top leadership assigned cessation of hostilities. And the next day you hear they are clashing in another place. The next day you hear the same group has attacked civilians on the road and yeah. killed people. The next day, Just even amongst themselves within the same group, they will clash and even fight because so-and-so is not appointed as a governor. So-and-so is not wanted to be a captain and others even become self-proclaimed military officers, you see. So it's just very complicated. I don't know how far this we go. We'll go again. Yeah, just to say, I think as someone that studied <laughs> politics and political theories that I just wonder if, you know, this case of South Sudan, like, you know, they've just not had a chance to be a nation and when I say nation, like had that unity of, I don't know, being under maybe one commander, it's always been factionalized. And to be honest, I think South Sudan is one of the only countries I know in Africa that kind of rewards factions. So if you fight, you're kind of 
rewarded. Like now, what I can see in the government is that I think there are like five vice presidents, just so that there is no issue. Whereas in other countries, it's, nobody it's just suppressed. Even because in Nigeria, we have the Southeast, they are kind of fighting for independence, but they always use South Sudan as an example. Like exactly. they fought, they have their independence, but what they don't realize is the other issues that are happening because of that. So yeah, South Sudan is a very interesting case, but I was, I just wanted to remember in 2005 when, when Garang came to address the people of Southern Sudan in Ye, that time yeah. I was a student. Um, he said this word in Arabic that it means the issue of leadership, the chair and money will spoil the way to our freedom. And then mm. he said, there's a quote, he said, there are people who fought this war, but there were others who did not fight. They will cut a big piece of land and sell just for a bottle of beer. It's because they okay. don't care about the future of this country. Mm -hmm. They have no dream for that small boy, small girl who will grow up one day and become somebody. Yeah, but going by his quotes, like Dr. Riak Mishar and even Salva, they did fight for the war. They did fight for South Sudan, but things are still very much messed up. So the I don't know. Is, they, <laughs> have brought, they have brought people who did not actually fight this war. Okay. So why, would, okay. why would the generals get annoyed? If I was one of the generals, even I would just kindly request them to resign by force. Okay, I see that. Yeah. So going back to the book, why do you think Emma and Riek were drawn to each other? Was their case love at first sight or something else? I'll go to you, Tanji. Um, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, unfortunately, Emma is no longer here for us to ask her directly. Um, when you read the book, that's how it seems, right? And I think there's actually a passage on page 167 where it says that he held her hand for a long minute, looking straight into her eyes, a slow gap-toothed smile spread across his face. His gaze seemed to swallow her up. Emma stammered that she had heard a lot about him. In his low, thrilling voice, he answered that he had heard about her too. And that's a description of, right, of their first meeting. And as you read through it, she basically says that she had fallen for him before she even finished yeah. Her, her speech or her plea for him to support the education of the young boys um, that were that were in the camps there. So it seems from the book that that's the way that it's portrayed. And we know also from the things that she had shared with her friends and others and the people that the author interviewed that she seemed to fall in love very quickly and also seemed to to, you know, feel that she could be in love with more than one person at the same time. So I would say based on the author's recounting of Emma's conversations with her friends and things like that, that yeah, it does appear that, that it was love at first sight. Um, whether that would have been enough to sustain their relationship is a different thing, right? Because there has to be reason why she stayed in the relationship in the hard conditions that she was living in and with the very challenging task that she had of trying to bring education to Nasser and to the other locations that she was working in. So yes, but but I, I would like to know more and I wish we could ask her these questions of what, well, okay, that's what got you in the first place, but what made you stay? Riek was drawn to her. 
Yeah. Well, it seemed they were both very drawn to each other at the same time and in the same way. Hmm. I don't know. I think I think Sanzo kind of alluded to it, which is that when you meet Emma, you're kind of enthralled by the fact that she's living in the most difficult conditions, especially obviously as a British national. Like she has, she could be anywhere in the world and she's right here with you. So at first you're drawn to the fact that she cares a lot about South Sudan, even in the way like other aid workers kind of keep their respectable distance. She's willing to even go further. Now, why she actually does, whether it's altruism or her nature or danger, I don't know. But I guess as a South Sudanese person, you're just immediately taken to her and the fact that, and then when they first met and she was already passionately talking about education, again, a sector that in the humanitarian sense is not really looked at because it's, it's not a basic necessity as such, but there's somebody willing to even look at that aspect and look further in terms of investing in your people's future and things like that. And as we all know, she was also very charming, um, also very attractive. So I th- and, and very charismatic in the way she talked and you know, always center of attention in every room. So I can see why he was extremely fascinated with her. And I, apparently he married a third wife after Emma. <laughs> And again, it was somebody, I think, in America that was involved in aid and was really involved in South Sudanese um, politics and whatever. They fell in love with that over the phone. So I think he liked that, that kind of extra mile passion for his cause. And yeah. Yeah. I was thinking also, he probably saw a lot of loyalty in Emma. Loyalty. That's the word. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Loyalty. Um, but on the flip side, like playing devil's advocate, I was thinking maybe he thought she could provide him with extra resources that he might need. That could be the other agenda. The child could be thinking when he, he defected from, from Garang in 91, having Emma beside him would aid him with more resources. You know, there's nobody who wants a liability in the first place. Emma could be an asset to him that will maybe fund him being a British woman. To me, yes. that was it. Besides, there was love. Yes, I understand. But Emma has gone beyond the humanitarian sector, you see. I can go, you know, where we are working, sometimes there is flood. You yes. go extra miles, even entering in the, into the water to do protection assessment to ensure the safety of the children, women, and the elderly people, the persons with disability. You know, you do this with passion and selflessness. You go that length, but not to the length that Emma went to. I'm just thinking there should be something attached to that, not just the not love sparrows. Right, right. So going off of that, because I, in my heart of hearts, I feel like men who have multiple wives or women don't really know what love really is. <laughs> That's just my personal opinion. So... Do you think Emma really believed in polygamy or was it just a justification for her current situation? Um, if Emma was here, we could, <laughs> we could really ask her that question right, right. because Im- imagine a kawaja. Anyway, that is how we call the white people in, in South. We call them Amuzungu, laying down her life, even knowing very well this man is married. Personally, I don't, I don't like 
and I don't love the, the polygamous life, although I come from one of the biggest polygamous family. So I was just imagining, how did Emma fit herself even into that, knowing very well Angelina is a military woman. She herself is a military woman. She's a, an, an army personnel. How do you go and fall in love with the husband of a, a woman who is also a military woman? What, she, what if one day she wakes up and blow your head? I mean, I think we don't really get an answer to that from the book specifically. We don't really hear much about Emma's perspective on polygamy. But what we do know is that from from when she was young and she was in college and she was living in London and um, I think it was London. Yeah. And she was, you know, basically expressing to her friend that she did have an attraction to African men and she did have affairs with married men at the time. So perhaps it wasn't necessary about polygamy specifically, but, you know, given that his first wife wasn't immediately in the area and around at the time that perhaps it was easier to reconcile those ideas and perhaps see it as more of an affair rather than an endorsement of polygamy. That's true. And, you know, just bouncing off of that, I know she was really upset with Rhea when she, when he, when she learned that he had slept with his wife while they were married. So the whole document, there was a documentary of her and the media came and they were asking her this question and she was justifying it. And then it was so funny, like a few months or a few years later, she learned that Rhea had cheated on her while they were married with his wife. And apparently she was quite livid. So yeah, I think out of sight, out of mind in that sense that his wife wasn't there. So it was okay till it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanna ask you Sanzo, in the daily lives of the South Sudanese, how does religion and traditional beliefs play a role? I may say religion and tradition, more especially tradition plays a a very big role. If you see the context of South Sudan today, and if you look right now, go to J1, the state house where president is sitting. There is a council of elders seated next to him every day. Whether they are giving giving him wrong advice, whether they are giving him (laughs) correct advice. And secondly, when you look at religion, the Southern part, majority of us are Christians we are not Muslims, mm-hmm. but I came to realize that Southerners, they are very flexible. They are, they accommodate whoever who wants to choose whichever religion you want to go to, that's up to you. However, those ones who are Muslim, it's now the biggest challenge. Um, the Muslims families cannot get married to Christian families. If you want to marry a girl who is a Muslim, you have to become a Muslim. If you want to marry a man who is a Muslim, you have to become a Muslim. So that is the challenge here. It's mm-hmm. like the Muslim religion dictates the, the Arabic way of living, you know. They don't give people the liberty to choose whatever they want. Even the way, the way they are living, I think is, it's very restricted. Like more especially women are so much being restricted. You don't have choice. You listen to whoever who tells you what to do, when, how. Yeah. So I have a feeling that the religion plays a big role in this country. The culture is also playing a big role. Yeah. You think because traditional beliefs are so rooted in, in ancient yeah. thinking and hasn't been updated. Absolutely. It's rooted yeah. into the minds of people. Even your grandmother will tell you, no, girls are not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's rooted in their hearts. And now it will take time that this narrative will change. It will really, really take time. 
But on the positive side, um, and this is for our two guests, so let's start with you, Sanzo. On the positive side, what are some like ancient South Sudanese beliefs that you're kind of worried is going to phase out or you're just appreciative of that, you know, you're part of? Um, the South Sudanese belief that I'm, I, was, I admired most when I was growing up, I only yeah. know that uh, I admired the unity of the Southerners when they were fighting the 21 years of war. I lived peacefully with the Dinkas. I admire the diversities of Southern Sudanese that time. We are living together with group of them without any problem. We were also living with, them, with, the, with some people from Nuba Mountains peacefully. We, we really coexist until 2013. Now tribalism has taken an upper hand the tribe, the two big tribes in South Sudan started fighting. Imagine your brother that you have been with all these years today is pointing the barrel at you. That made me even cry that time in Juba in 2013. I was just imagining, but we have been together. Why are we fighting now ourselves again? We fought this war together that we wanted this South Sudan. I always remember when Garang will come to address the army. I grew up in an army barracks anyway. So he would okay. say, let us make the unity of Sudan attractive. His wish was to become a president of Sudan. Actually, he wanted to become a president of Sudan. I knew if he didn't die, he was going to make us actually vote for unity. We were not going to vote for secession. He wanted to become the president of the whole Sudan and make the unity of Sudan attractive. And then I admired that unity. I admired that peaceful coexistence. I admired the diversity, the different cultures in the 64 tribes of South Sudan. I admire that very much. South Sudanese are very passionate people. Like today I was traveling in the plane. One of them just offered me a coffee while I was sitting waiting for my COVID, the PCR result. So uh. this, is, this is how South Sudanese are. They are very welcoming. But now when it comes to dividing people into the tribal lines, that is what I don't admire at all. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's quite sad. Well, how about you, um, Tanjit? Is there anything you've seen, like obviously living in South Sudan in terms of beliefs that you wish maybe was more adopted in America or other parts of the world or you really, really cherish that you know about? That's a really interesting question. So in the last year uh, or two, South Sudan has really been impacted by flooding and other disasters mm -hmm. related to climate change. And one of the things that I've also been able to find out about during the interviews I've been doing is the indigenous knowledge that a lot of communities have about maintaining the environment and preventing a lot of these adverse reactions. Um, one of the things that Asiento mentioned before was the deforestation that's happening in South Sudan. We know that mm -hmm. South Sudan is not a primary contributor to climate change by any means, but it is certainly one of the countries that's most significantly impacted. Um, and so there's a lot of indigenous knowledge, I think, um, in the rural areas where the majority of the population lives where people know how to preserve the environment. Um, you know, there are ways of, of using trees and the wood in a sustainable manner that people practice for generations upon generations. Now, unfortunately with displacement and urbanization, a lot of that knowledge is being lost and not necessarily always transferred to the current generation. Um, for example, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a part of the school curriculum, but I think there are different initiatives now trying to change that and more attention being paid to it. Um, which is really important. 
Um, and I think that that is something that also, you know, within the U.S. and other areas, we're not really thinking much about how we can transfer this knowledge to um, the future generations that we're encountering. The other thing I wanted to mention, which I do appreciate about South Sudan, is despite, you know, the framing of the liberation movement around Christianity and in opposition to Arabization and Islamization, mm-hmm. um, there, like at the start of every function, especially government functions, there's always like a Christian prayer and an and a Muslim prayer at the beginning of every single <laughs> event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, I think you have that as well. Yeah, which is which I think, you know, is is refreshing to see, especially when you look at other countries like India, for example, where religious violence is such an issue. You don't have that mm-hmm. challenge in South Sudan. So there are ethnic tensions, which Asianto yes. was describing earlier, but religious violence is not one of the challenges that you would observe in South Sudan. Thank you for that, um, Tanji. Okay, last question. Um, I'll ask um, both of you, Tanji, first. Based on Sudan's history, what are some lessons that could be learned in the field of international development and foreign aid? And what's the way forward with that? Oh, that is such a good question. (laughs) I think one of the things that we know about research that's been done in different countries over history is that no policy program initiative of any kind can be successful unless it has a sufficient buy-in from the community. And I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, in times where, for example, even the liberation movement, for example, was something that that had quite a lot of support, as as Asienda mentioned, it was something that people united around, even though, you know, at times there were differing factions and things like that and fragmentation, but it was probably one of the most unifying things that you would see in South Sudan's history. But even now that we're looking, trying to move to more of a post-conflict phase, ensuring that community buy-in, whether it's in government or whether it's in the aid sector and the implementation of programs and services, that is so incredibly important. And I think that is that is a very significant lesson to learn, especially if we want any of these investments and initiatives and efforts, even if we want any of these efforts to be sustainable and to be successful, because you see a lot of the current generation who are in their 20s and 30s who you know, have received their education, they're excited, they're passionate, they're energetic, and they want to contribute to their country, but they're being really hindered and feeling very frustrated about the lack of opportunities and, able, and being able to use their skills and resources in that way. So providing a conducive environment, including them, and nurturing the efforts that they're making is so important in going forward. Nice. Thank you. Sandra, what about you? Uh, I was imagining if you could empower community to embrace some positive way of resilience. We have some resilience projects to some states that are very stable, like more especially in the equatorial region, they start producing their own food. And then also encouraging farmers to have this kind of, uh, they call it exhibition, compete with other states, that will also encourage other people to start boosting agriculture and we could fight hunger out of this right. country. If you, go, mm-hmm. if you go to some parts of South Sudan, completely their land alone is not even, the texture of the soil is not good for cultivation. So other parts of the country who have very good texture of soil could be the one providing food to these other people other than us relying only in the humanitarian uh, aid. Otherwise, if, if I'm just imagining if it continues like this for another 20 years, people are only relying on humanitarian aid. We have to give NFI. We have to give food. We have to give medication. We have to give like everything. So 
how long will this continue? We need to move to another extent of empowering people to have positive mechanisms of coping up by themselves other than these negative mechanisms that they go and rob people to get what they want. We need yeah. to have programs that, that brings young people. Imagine this country, uh, 75%, according to the population census in 2010, um, 75% of the, of the people are young, like 65% of them are women. And you see these 65% women are working for free. Mm. Majority of them are working for free. You look at the GDP of this country, how much is are these women contributing to to the development of this country? Let me say financially, the economy of this country, because they are working for free, they are not being able to pay to to be paid salary or their wages. So you find that the economy will not improve because majority are women, sixty five percent being women. That is a huge number. If we could have recreational activities for young girls, even the school dropout, to engage them in income generating activity so that they become self-reliant. Maybe we could reduce some of this burden and even the dependent syndromes will start reducing. I've always thought farming initiatives was the way to go. I watched this YouTuber, his name is Wude Maya. He's from Ghana and he actually visited um, South Sudan and met with a young lady. She, she's South Sudanese, but I think she schooled in America and she came back, she's young and started uh, farming. She has a huge farm and employs people. And I'm not sure, I know that she sells um, her, her goods to people. I'm not sure if she exports, but yeah, it's a great way to increase revenue. So I yeah, I've always supported farming initiatives. I think that's a good way to go. Yeah. Like right now, uh, in Northern Bahar of Gazas, in the border, there's a border that is bordering Sudan, South Sudan, and Northern Darfur, those ends of Kiradem. You may not know these places. People are cultivating with their horses and the donkeys. So meaning in another way, just in the next six months, they will harvest their own food. The GFD, GFD is the general food distribution that WFP gives to, to the displaced people in that location, comes after six months. And the ratio is even very small. And you know with the extended families in those regions, in the Dinkalad, one person has like 10 women and they have more than 28 children in the same family. That's why others even become, they go for cattle raiding. Now, if they're engaged in agriculture, they produce their own food. If WFP come after six months, they still have their own food to survive in. Mm -hmm. Then they will, they will not be engaged in some of these negative thoughts or no politician will, will come and even confuse them to go and fight because they are very busy. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right, that's all I have. Um, does anyone have anything else to add to the book or anything about South Sudan that you want to add? Um, no, it's just, I'm just great we had this conversation. You know, our guests on the podcast as well, like obviously having the passion of Sanzo and just, you know, the freedom and, you know, her just talking about her being South Sudanese and also having the perspective of, Tanjit as a foreigner, but also with the love of South Sudan. So it's interesting to, it was interesting to hear their perspective. So I feel like I'm more knowledgeable about like different sides. And yeah, it's, I think there is kind of hope for South Sudan. And when I started this conversation, I think as you guys know, I was like, oh my God, this is so disappointing. But 
there's something Tanjit said, is, which is that, you know, it's still a young country. A lot of these systems, they've not only were they not there, like at the time of independence, but even pre-independence, it wasn't even there because there was a lot of concentration on the North. And even if it was there because of their years and 20 something years of civil war, it must have been erased. So they're having to start from a starting line that I don't think a lot of countries in the world can even relate to. So there is hope. And yeah, from now on, I'm just going to be watching the news on South Sudan because I feel like obviously creating this podcast episode has opened my eyes a bit more. Yeah. I'm actually, I actually want to travel there now. (laughs) You're welcome. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. I tell you. But how is it when people... Sorry. Okay, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, how is it right now? Can we travel? Are we going to be in danger of our lives? I don't know. Can we only stay in Juba? Can we visit... um, There's no danger. Yes, you can visit Yambio by air, even even by road if you won't get that. Just know that our roads are not as, as smooth as with, with a lot of potholes. Mm-hmm. So you can visit people move from, from, from Juba to Yambio, from Wao to Yambio. Currently I'm based in Wao, not Juba. But while passing from Juba yesterday, I have seen there is a great move. I have seen even some places that I left when there was no building, there are some buildings coming up. I have a feeling if, if we will only mm-hmm. lay down our arms and begin to invest in development, begin to invest in education sector, begin to invest in the security sector most importantly. If they improve in the security sector, I believe Juba would just grow very fast. Other parts of South Sudan, like Malakal had really, really grown a lot, but now Malakal is destroyed into ashes. And again, today, Malakal is still bleeding. So I believe when we lay down these arms, we stop investing in buying arms and improve the security, South Sudan will never be the same. South Sudan maybe will one day become like Rwanda. That's, that's what I am thinking. Mm-hmm. So right now it's peaceful. We can travel, like, yeah. Yeah, Juba is, Juba is very peaceful. Except there are there are these cattle raiding and other okay, uh, specific true. specific groups fighting outside Juba and not in all the regions. This is happening in specific groups where there is disagreement. They disagree there, they fight themselves there, but it's not extending to other parts of the country. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, does anyone else have anything to add? I just wanted to say thank you both so much for inviting us to this conversation. I'm so glad I got to meet Asiendo. And of course, you're both more than welcome to visit Juba or any other location, as long as it's stable. <laughs> but um, yeah, now you have family in South Sudan, so you're more than welcome. Yeah, yeah. I want to see that magic that everyone's talking about. Um, I, I can, can feel it. I definitely want to go. But yeah, thank you so much, guys, for speaking with us about the book Emma's War about South Sudan it was a very interesting conversation yeah and for our audience where don't forget to like share and subscribe and follow us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook um, we share some interesting content on our social media platforms and have some informative discussions leading up to the next episode um, so the next book that we'll be reading is the house at Sugar Beach 
by Helene Cooper. They're going to Liberia for this one. Um, so stay tuned. I'm looking forward to discussing this book on our next show. But until then, take care and have a blessed week.